everyone. Welcome to the Travel Mouth Podcast. I'm here with my friend Sylvan. Sylvan, great to have you on. How you doing, man? Ah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining me. I'm really excited about this. When I read your your survey, which uh, you thoughtfully filled out, and uh, man, I, I was I was joking with Heather saying that I could probably just read this uh, on the podcast, and it's it's great content. So thank you so I mean, much for doing that. You present me with a form. I'm going to fill out a form. Yeah, you, you filled it out. All right. I love it. Um, I kind of want to start with the first thing, uh, or actually the last thing that you mentioned on on here, which was uh, that top shelf Boilermaker. I, I really like this concept and it makes me want to make one. Cool. Yeah, no, it's sort of, it, it came about by wanting to try lots of beers and sometimes beers sort of disappointed me and, you know, I didn't want to continue on going through the whole beer and being ongoingly disappointed. So that's where, you know, the idea of making it into a cocktail came about and, you know, what is sort of the, perhaps in my view, the quintessential beer cocktail, but the Boilermaker. And so we have a, a decent liquor cabinet um, and started sort of playing around with, with what would, you know, elevate a perhaps uh, beer that wasn't otherwise living up to expectations. I think it's such a great idea. And it just gets my mind going on all the different directions. You could take all the different beers too. Like I think Boilermakers is kind of an under underappreciated drink, underappreciated style. I don't see too many places doing them. Yeah. I mean, I think of like, what are the beer cocktails out there? And it's like what the, the Michelada maybe falls into that, yeah. but they're not really, not, not really an area that folks are pursuing. And that's fair. Like we're getting really cool beers, but you know, like one can do with really cool spirits, you know, you can sort of elevate and devolve um, by adding other things and sort of presenting it in a new and different way. So when you're doing your Boilermakers, are you literally dropping the shot into the beer? Like are the shot glass goes into the beer glass? Or are you are you dumping the the measured spirit into the beer? Like what's your... It, it is measured. I for, okay. for sort of the interest of wanting to be able to like reproduce and understand like how well things right. work, you know, if you're using a higher proof whiskey, you know, are you going to want to dial it back? And, you know, the beer stand up against, you know, you a, an equal measure of a lower proof and a higher proof whiskey. So you're um, making on, on the fly adjustments there. Yeah. I like it. And then do you do you really drop the shot glass into the beer glass or do you like I do not. I'm not that cool. Okay. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't either. That's what I was picturing. I'm like I don't think I'm going to do that part. No, no. This is just sort of, you know, what what would like a rye added to a rye IPA be like? And then like what if oh. you take, you know, See, that's like it a right there. IPA with like the floral explosion that can come from that and then add rye or, you know, rum even do sort of these, you know, more exciting rums that are out there. Yeah, and I I see spirits companies finishing stuff in IPA casks or in you know beer casks of different varieties. So I I, I know that flavor and I I can see exactly how it would work. I I love yeah. it as an idea. I have an Angel's Envy uh, rum finished right now that's got a maple kind of flavor to it, maple syrupy okay. vibes, and I think that would be amazing in like I don't know like a stout or something. Yeah, I was thinking. That's what know, I was what trying to imagine. Freem has their maple porter that's sort of a, a staple of theirs. I love Freem. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go there the other day and and actually got to experience Hood River and was just, oh, I'm in love. I It felt like paradise. That is a very fun scene. Yeah. Um, I got there and Saltgrass Barbecue was on site doing their two-year anniversary. And they had a little uh, farmer's market going on in the kind of the under area at Freem. And... Or no, it was at Ferment. I'm sorry, at Ferment. And then we went down the street. Of course, Freem's right there as yep. well. Yep. We went down the street and, and had a beer at Freem. Yeah, yeah, that whole waterfront has evolved. Uh, you know, from even just a decade ago, it's it's transformational. 
But yeah, no, we're at, we're headed out there in a couple months. Um, and I'm the name's escaping me right now, but a cidery from Vash on an Island had an arrangement with a apple orchard down there that was also a bed and breakfast. And I think the, you know, bed and breakfast sort of evolved and moved on. And so this uh, cidery has now sort of taken over the operation and is um, putting out what looks to be a very like food focused, you know, quasi agritourism bed and breakfast um, nice. operation on and it's I'm, I'm pretty jazzed. That sounds very you. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. You know what was funny? The of all the businesses there that were in that kind of complex, the one that was funny to me was that Tofurky is there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. There's like distilleries and cideries and wineries and just all this stuff. And then Tofurky. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a fermentation process involved in I mean, yeah, so it's, there's a fermentation process there too. Yeah. That makes sense. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> No, it'd be know. interesting it's... to to see their their equipment and see their facility. I don't know if there's tours or anything, but that kind of caught my attention. Now you I mentioned, there was uh, a... yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. There was a show I saw that looked at what um, corn Q U O R N. Yeah, um, the the little tiny mushrooms. They do that, right? The micromycelium. Yeah. Yep, that seemed like a crazy process. Not not so I much read... a ferment, like. Yeah. Yeah, I read about it, and then somebody had drawn up like an infographic on how it it's made, and I was just oh, completely like, "Wow, food science, man! This is so cool. <laughs> this is the future. That's how we avoid eating bugs, you know?" Yeah, I mean, it, it's <laughs> that something that we're definitely going to face, and it, it, that's why I absolutely, think it, you know, to jump ahead in my survey questions a little bit, there was the one like, what snack foods. Um, yeah, I was tasting and at the time. I was getting all, you know, Lundberg, Northern California production. They had sort of done value added products with these various rice chips. But the one that is just hitting me now and I just purchased 13 boxes from Safeway of Triscuits because Triscuits, if you even without the regular flavors and the salt flavors right now, you can go down to your local Safeway and get like, you know, smoked Gouda and oh, avocado yeah. cilantro lime and like, you know, will avocado cilantro lime Triscuit outlast the avocado on, on our earth? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I love Triscuits. I, I eat lots of Triscuits. <laughs> we buy the big multi-packs. Uh, just, just the standard. I mean, we get the okay. organic ones, but yeah, just the standard ones. I, I've tried all the flavors. I think when I was buying the flavors regularly, I think it was black pepper something that mm -hmm. I liked the best. Yep. The cracked black pepper. Yep. 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 I know. So I'm excited. Well, I looked up those uh, rice cakes that you're talking about. I have not had those, nor have I seen them. So I'm going to have to keep an eye out for them. They're probably at one of my specialty grocers around here, I would assume. Yeah, I've I've seen Lundberg rice cakes as far as, you know, Beijing. So like they're they're just oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'll find them then. <laughs> yep. I guess I don't shop the rice cake section too often, but it's cool to see that they're doing more interesting stuff. I never got into the like, you know, thick tubes of rice cakes, but the, the little like... Um, what did I have recently? It was like a pop pop snacks or something that's made out of rice. And those are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are they not corn? Are they not like pressure extruded corn? I think it's corn and, I think it's corn okay. and rice, maybe, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be. That's the one thing that Amy has banned me from getting in terms of um, home appliances is I'd, I'd love to get some sort of pressure extruder so you can like puff anything. Um, yes. Just see see what comes of it. I don't know. Puffed Puffed meat is still sort of a curiosity for me. Wow. Sure would work. But like a puffed sausage, like that'd be cool. Yeah. I just wonder what the texture would be like, because I, I'm sure that you would, 
still leave some moisture behind. I don't know. It'd be it'd be interesting if it would if you could actually get it crispy, you know. Yeah. Through that process. I'm I'm mm-hmm. into it. Like I, I think the advancements that we've made, even in you know, non-meat products are are driving the the, the food science to create things for meat eaters as well. So it's it's really cool that we're moving that stuff ahead and kind of doing it with like health in mind is sort of a new bend. I think before it was all about how much food can we possibly make for as cheap as possible. And that was sort of the, you know, the direction that food science seemed to be taking. And I like that we're going towards health and flavor and sustainability. I think those are our new drivers in that industry. And it's kind of cool to see what's coming out of it. Yeah. I'm uh, you still mentioned the uh, day where they create a flavor oh. that is like completely unfamiliar, where you no longer tie it to, you know, it's sort of like the blue raspberry of food flavors. Like, what is blue raspberry? It's, it's blue. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know the story on how they, I mean, was that like an attempt to get a flavor right and a new flavor was created? I actually don't know the oh, story on blue raspberry. No, no clue myself either, but yeah, I, I, I can imagine you can sort of translate that into to food items. You know, what is that rice cake that is blue? I read something once that the banana flavor that we use, the fake banana flavor, is based on a banana variety that doesn't exist anymore. I can buy that. It's one of those things that like watermelon, you know, like watermelon yeah. flavor is sort of a flavor yeah. that one really doesn't encounter in watermelon. It's just it's, it's right. But recognizable as watermelon. Since we all eat the what is it? The Cavendish banana, I guess, is the one that that's everywhere now, but it's not based on the Cavendish. So it doesn't taste like a Cavendish, which is kind of great. I think that's interesting. It's like uh, it's like frozen in time. Yeah. Let's talk about Georgia. Now, I am not other than knowing where that is and that they have been making wine for a long time. I just don't feel like I know much about it. I would say I feel like I, I know enough to know that I should not say that I know anything about it also. Well, well <laughs> I mean, just the, just the fact that you you know the wine region that you're most interested in, and maybe I'm going to say this incorrectly, but Cavevri, or how do you say that? Cavevri? I'm going to stick with how you say it, because I okay. don't... I, I've heard let's it let's roll place, with that. We're right until we're wrong. Like, <laughs> yes, I was going to, you know, it's the, it's the amphora in the ground approach. Oh, um, love that. To making wine and you know it's one of you know possibly disputed disputed the oldest wine regions out there so certainly you know if if you're looking for that you know what was what is a process that has existed you know far beyond you know written history but you can now taste it and still taste it and maybe it's different or maybe it's you know the same um that that's what strikes me as such rather you know not that fermenting in like stainless or oak or any of those processes don't produce, you know, beautiful, amazing wines, but just that it's, it produces a different wine and experience that we don't really see here in the U S and I, I don't know. I mean, I, there are some in the Northwest wineries that are doing amphora fermentation, um, yeah. but all I've seen is above ground. And I don't know if maybe there's like a, you know, food safety aspect to that, that you can't, you know, just go out into your field and bury an amphora and then sell it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a curiosity. I don't see why if it was in an area that was, yeah, I don't think it would be a problem. I can't imagine. And and I'm sure somebody's doing it. I saw when I was at uh, Trifontenen uh, in Belgium, they had a few different amphora that they were doing some experiments in. So hopefully like they're headed ground. in that direction as well. Above ground. Yeah, yeah. they were above ground. <laughs> That's the other element that, that strikes me as really interesting, sort of in that natural, you know, evolution from sort of artificial control to sort of natural processes is that, you know, think of brewing fermentation, 
a lot of effort goes into temperature control, you know, these glycol jackets and, um, you know, humidity control in the, you know, barrel. And that was my first thought about burying them in the ground is the amount of temperature stability that you would create. I mean, I'm sure it would go up and down, but very slowly. And I would think very slowly. And also you'd have a, a very humid or at least a, you know, a relatively low transfer of moisture and humidity relative to sort of being in open air, unless you have, I guess, very high humidity environments and yeah. Yeah. Like would rain affect, I, I imagine it would like your, your wine would change if you have a couple rainy days and, you know, much in the way that yeah. maybe rain leaches minerals into the outer, you know, portion of the amphora. And maybe some of that ends up going into the wine as well. Maybe you end up getting some like earth minerals in your wine. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. So that it's, it's, it's something that strikes me as curious and, you know, in the same way there, the food culture sort of has been that, you know, sometimes, um, when folks talk about sort of Caucasian culture um, and this being people of the Caucasus, not sort of how we're, you know, we, we do have white people culture, but um, <laughs> whatever that is meant to mean. Um, but that you have a lot of these, uh, you know, you look at the Armenian church and you look at sort of, uh, you know, the um, Azeri Armenian relations and how those have sort of been tensions that have existed for so long, but still exist to this day. And you had sort of the, you know, intervention of the Soviet Union and how those sort of, nations and states then sort of evolved and changed and pre and post and it's still all very messy and why i will never have anything you know particularly insightful because it it's it's just it's not my culture it's not what i know but it it is fascinating to me and so that's to me also georgian food i was able um to go to armenia and sort of experience their you know their evolution of caucasian history from alexander the great and you know mongols and it's just it's all of that has sort of been that crossing point um but georgian you know just right there and yet sort of both culturally a world away and the same and it's yeah it's it strikes me as a a place of of sort of historic complexity that hasn't been that that some that has survived sort of the the Soviet era in a in a really interesting and um, in a way that I, I just don't think I'll ever understand. And that's that's maybe why I want to go check it out. I was never taught anything about the Armenian genocide or anything in school ever. And uh, sadly, the first time I learned about it was from the band System of a Down. Um, <laughs> and I was in my twenties, you know, out of out of high school and. I kind of went in and started doing my own research on it. And yeah, it's so complex. And it feels like maybe four different cultures more have written different versions of what the issues are. And it's just, I, like you said, I, I feel so uh, unqualified to to comment on any of it. But it's just such a old world situation of uh, conflict, you know, over over time. And And from that, you end up getting some really interesting food. <laughs> you know, well, that's that's sort of what always wins is the food always wins. It's like, well, now we got this new cooking method that you guys brought. So let's try it with our traditional foods and see what happens. And then you've got all these new dishes that come out of it. And I don't know. I love it. I love that part of it. And not so much the conflict part of it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's certainly not, you know, I, right now, unfortunately, I think is is not the time to go food touring in Georgia. Um, no. But. Well, something else you mentioned, and I this is something I don't know if I put it in in so many words, but you mentioned that uh, food uh, is functional art, and that's that's something that you connect to about food. And I, I guess I don't use those terms exactly, but man, that's exactly what I feel like. I feel like it's it's like both necessary, but it's also an opportunity. 
And so I think some people treat it as, you know, there's kind of different ways people land on the on the spectrum of that. Some people are going to land on the, it's just utility. I eat what I have to eat. You know, I food prep once a week. I eat the same thing eight days a week. Um, there's seven days a week. <laughs> um, but then there's the other end of the spectrum where some people are like, oh, I, I had tacos yesterday. I'm not going to have tacos again. You know, well, it's, this is a different taco restaurant. Well, you know, I, I, I just, I don't eat tacos more than once a week or whatever. I think people kind of vary on on how they they do that and i i really land on the like as much variety as possible i want to and that's really the idea it's funny the name travel mouth is really it does come from that it's that idea that even when i can't travel my mouth can travel and even though i can't be in shanghai i can have a dish that's popular in shanghai with some ingredients from the netherlands in it you know and and really have like a multi-continent meals that are very personal to my own flavors, my own choices. And I love that opportunity. That is one of my favorite things. And you you mentioned too how much uh, variety means to you. Tell me about that. Yeah. What does that so, mean to you? So so variety to me, I would say is is gosh, that's a that's a tough question. Um yeah. I wouldn't even necessarily say that it needs to be to go back to your taco uh restaurant example Analogy. i wouldn't even say it sure. has to be a different taco restaurant like just you know the day-to-day -day variation if you have you know different um humidity different you know um environmental impacts like i we, we you say taco restaurant and i at the same taco restaurant twice this past week just because you know i went there Hell one yeah. day and just was so taken by like the specials at the time and the environment and we went back the next day and it was you know the first day it was sunny and the second day it was cloudy and we were eating outside and it was just sort of a very different experience and what was to like come before and came after um, um at all micro so, variety i love it exactly. you're finding the variety within yes that's so cool did you end up getting the same tacos you said you got the special the first time i did i got the same tacos the second day um nice yeah it was it was the the two taco specials that day were they have what they called animal style so it's like the ground beef, French fries, fried onions, bacon, um, in a taco, in a taco, in a taco. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is not a traditional oh. taco place. All right. Um, is this in Corvallis? It is. We're going there next time I'm in Corvallis. Um, I gotta have this taco. And the, well, it's, it's, it's probably not going to be there. That's sort of oh. the, the cool thing about this place is they, these two were their specials for the oh, day. Okay. The other one was a a lamb shank taco with like mint and tzatziki oh my goodness um, like uh pickled onion and just it yeah it it was enough variety for me at that moment and then their cocktail list is sort of so over the top um that even you know that same food but different pairing different drink pairing separate day completely different experience uh, but yeah no right like important it. and sort of one of the areas when you you know reference being able to you know, pull a dish that's popular in Shanghai and get an ingredient from the Netherlands. That's sort of also what drew me to espresso for I had, you know, been, I, I didn't enjoy espresso a lot before the pandemic and sort of would go to different coffee shops and see the, you know, variation in both, you know, the, the, both the multi-roaster shop and the, you know, roaster operator shops um, can sort of have different takes on their coffee. If you're a roaster and you want to present your coffee in a certain way, that's, I think, sort of a, a pretty clean expression of the intent. But then if you have a multi-roaster shop, suddenly you have, you know, a, a barista taking their own approach with something that a roaster had intended. And sort of when the pandemic came in, 
worlds got a lot smaller. But to me, that was sort of one of the very cool things that getting more into coffee enabled was that, especially in sort of the, the roast profiles that I prefer, um, you generally are not going to be drinking these more than sooner than like 21 days off roast. So you can order coffee from, you know, as I, I'll, I will, I, I work as a, in sort of uh, emissions evaluation. So sometimes I'm a bit wary of admitting these, but I'll order coffee from Singapore. I'll order it from the Netherlands and it can take a long time. I have right now, there's a really cool roaster. Um, he, his, it's, his roastery is called the picky chemist. He's a very small scale out of Belgium. And my, that coffee has been in route for a month. Like I'm pretty confident ah. it took the slowest possible boat, but I'm not worried about it. And I'll get to be, you know, when it arrives, I'll get to be able to taste sort of, you know, my interpretation of what he had intended with his roast. And then, you know, his roast is then an interpretation of what the producer and the importer, um, or I guess, you know, the importer and their transit methods and their greens control, and then the producer and their farming methods and any processing they did after the fact. And so it's, that's, you know, getting more into home coffee enabled sort of becoming part of those global flavors that um, sort of went away when one couldn't go to cafes anymore, or at least not in the same way one could previously. Yeah. And I think the pandemic did that same thing to me. It's, you know, I wasn't able to travel and I, I really do try to at least get out of the country once a year and not being able to during the pandemic was like, oh, okay, well, let's go to an international market and buy some ingredients. Let's, let's pretend. And I even go as far as putting um, videos on the TV that are from that country. This oh, sounds kind of cheesy, no, that's but I cool. do it. Yeah, yeah, I do like walk arounds of cities. Like, you know, if I'm doing a Korean dish, um, I'll put Korea walk arounds on um, and they're, you know, beautiful 4K, someone walking around the streets of Korea. And it's it's just it kind of sets the tone and makes me it's a way to cheat to kind of hack like I'm in that country for just a moment. And I, I absolutely love doing that. I know coffee can definitely do that. I love that about coffee, that it's so international, too. It's not like there's one region that you've got to get coffee from or it's not good coffee. There are so many growing regions doing amazing things. And, you know, something that popped in my head when you were talking was, do you ever get like the same bean from multiple roasters, like grown the same way, processed the same way, all coming, you know, all the same green bean to start. And then it's multiple different roasters working on it to get kind of, I don't know, different roaster perspectives and then side by side those in like a blind or anything like that. I have. Um, there is one producer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've met you, Sylvan. There's one producer out of Colombia that's doing really amazing things. Um, and this is going to be all, me also messing up non-English. I, I struggle with languages. Um, but uh, El Pariso is the producer. Uh, his name is Diego Bermudez. Uh -huh. And uh, Manhattan Coffee Rose out of the Netherlands carries a lot of his stuff. But so do lots of other folks to include um, Hatch out of Toronto. Um, and so I had a coffee from um, El Pari Diego Bermudez um, that was done both by um, Manhattan and they do different roast profiles for espresso and filter. So I tried both of theirs um, as well as Hatch. And, um, you know, I definitely I, I have roaster preferences and um, part of sort of the fun evolution, I think in the past, maybe three or four years in sort of the home espresso extraction is folks taking um sort of lessons from these new coffee researchers there's one out of mm -hmm. um switzerland there's one out of here in oregon um and taking those lessons to sort of extract flavors and apply 
extraction methodologies that sort of hadn't been approached before. Like, how can you push extraction yield on a lighter roast bean that is harder to extract from? You know, if historically, you know, it pulling from a darker roast bean um, would have been preferable because you sort of were constrained in what your extraction methodology was. And so mm-hmm. if you had a bean that sort of readily gave up its solubles, that made for a more consistent, more exciting, you know, more pleasant to experience shot. But now that we sort of have these new approaches to extraction, um, you can start to take these beans that historically, you know, you would have, by historically, I mean like five years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they really sort of put towards filter only because filter can, you know, have that contact time, have that sort of um, tempo that you can't really, that historic, that, you know, traditionally would not have been allowed in sort of an espresso extraction. But now you can, now with, you know, new technology, new tools that folks are developing, you can do so in espresso. And so playing around with sort of what people would have normally said was for you know, a bean for filter, and maybe it still expresses um, best in filter, um, but you can now try as espresso. And so do, you know, to take yours one level further, it's like one producer with one, one processing of one crop to two different roasters. And now you can extract it three different ways <laughs> and um, micro variety. I love exactly. it. <laughs> That's cool. And the the understanding that can be gained from that, I think, is huge. Like you said, that you kind of find that you your profile, your your flavor choices kind of resonate more with with one roaster than another over, you know, time of doing that. And I think it's it's been similar for me and beer. I start to understand like, oh, I think I like their water better. And I think I like, you know, the more you get to know these products, you you start to understand the the little tiny variations that really make them special and 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 make them personal to the person that created them. And that's that that goes back to the uh you know, the thing we talked about before about functional art is that I, I, it all goes back to the artist, to the human that's involved. And that's what makes it so impactful for for me, because I see these things as like an expression of their humanity, of their artistic nature, of, of their perspective, even on the, the product. And I want that, you know, I, I long for that. And I, I love even going to the places that really specialize, like, we only do this, or we only do that, you know, we only have these two dishes or these, we only do this certain kind of coffee and we're focused on that because for the same reason that you focus in so closely, they want to know those particular products so well that they can understand them on a new level. And I really, I appreciate people like that. I look for people like that. I have so a question brings for you then. Into your in life. That, yeah, absolutely. In that thread. So we were recently in New England and I, I have, I, you know, this maybe makes me sort of a, a basic beer person, but I've long loved Hetty Topper by The Alchemist. Yeah, um, I just it 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 just you know it pushes all the right buttons for me, um, and so you know we found you know uh, Lawson's uh, Sunshine is in that thread, mm-hmm. sort of those double New England IPAs. I just got you know I sort of had some time to go to all the different treehouse locations in you know Greater Massachusetts. Their stuff really did it for me. Um, Trillium Brewing, sort of also in that Greater Boston area, their 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 double IPAs are just pushing my buttons. But when I have a New England style IPA on the West Coast, it just it it doesn't evoke the same the same experience for me. And you know, I know that you know, at, as with coffee, you know, when you're brewing, you can you can make all the water adjustments in the world that are needed. And so, what are your thoughts on why? And maybe maybe this is just you know the other experience of food where it's not actually the food, but it's the experience of the food. But why do you think that you know New England IPA translated to other places doesn't quite deliver the same is it that there's like a tradition amongst that region that sort of isn't you know migrating to other places or 
it's it's really it's all the things you're guessing at. It, it it is. It's it's they have a greater understanding of what the style is out there. They really do. It's it's like you know, being in a place that makes good pizza and you open a pizza shop that doesn't make good pizza, like you're going to fail. Like, what are you even doing? Like, there's no way you're going to survive. And so in that environment where there are, you're surrounded by good hazies, good New England IPAs in every direction, you really have to at least operate at a similar level or above or you're gone. And if you're out in a region where maybe you're not surrounded by really good ones, maybe they're all kind of mediocre at best then make a mediocre one and you'll do fine. And I think that is that is part of it. I also think you touched on this, uh, enjoying them in the place they're created. Um, all the factors go into uh, creation of any product, you know, your environment, your weather, all those kind of things. And I, I don't know why, but I think enjoying that product in its origin, it, there's something special to that. It's like you are in that environment that it was created in. And so you are sort of somehow in the mindset of the creator for a minute or something that really connects you even stronger to the product. And then thirdly, and this isn't something you had touched on, but you did touch on it with coffee, is every field is different. Every field of hops is different. Every field of grain is different. Um, and these people who are making these like heady toppers and trillium and things like that, guess who's getting the best hops in the world right now? <laughs> they are because they buy so many that they get to go out to these hop growers on site and do field inspections and pick their fields. This is the best field right here. We'll take this one and we'll take that one over there too. And yeah, sell the scraps to everybody else. So it really is a matter of they're using the best product in the place it was intended to be enjoyed um, and creating something in a market that is super competitive. And so they've got to shine in order to, you know, and it, I love regional food for that reason. Um, I always joke about doing a food travel show where you just travel the world and you eat in TGI Fridays <laughs> because it would be so hilarious. You're like, we're here in Singapore and we're going to check out the food scene here and whatever. And then you just go eat at a Starbucks or something. I had quite the fun Mexican restaurant experience in Kiev some decade ago. So I, I can certainly, certainly relate to that. That would be a, a way to experience it. Yeah. And, you know, it's not even what what you think is, oh, OK, that's just like Starbucks you're going to get at home or whatever, or, or TJ Fridays you get at home. It's not. It's going to be yeah. a version of it filtered through that culture and through that place. But just the idea that you wouldn't get amazing Singapore street food, you know, like, why not do that? Like, there's noodles in every direction. Like, come on. Eat the food of the place you're in. You can have a giant margarita from TGI Fridays. And then have a giant margarita. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I I do think it's all those factors, uh, and I would agree with you that enjoying it's like you know for me it's going to be uh, lambics in Belgium. Um, I love buying lambic and and goose and uh, drinking it at home, but there is absolutely nothing like drinking it in Belgium. It is uh, just another experience, and I think part of it too. I would I would say is kind of that vacation mindset, like not being in your home, not being on your grind, like you got on a plane, you went somewhere, you pulled yourself out of that um, sort of daily reality, and you forced yourself into a new reality. And in that new reality, I think appreciation is heightened. And I've noticed it for sure. And that's why I love travel so much. I can, I can recreate that travel here at home somewhat, but there's nothing like being in the place, enjoying the thing. That's for sure. So yeah. can you tell me about rum? Because I know nothing about rum. 
I mean, sure. I know what it's made out of, but you spelled it two different ways. And I have seen that on bottles. I, I need an education here. All right. So again, this is, uh, this is where I, I will always feel that I, I know, you know, I know enough to know that I know nothing, but well, you're, um, and you're further along yeah. on your journey. So just give me a hand up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, there is the English spelling of rum, R-U-M, the French spelling of rum, R-H-U-M, and sort of mm-hmm. in these, you know, different, you know, r- rum itself is is a product of sugarcane um, and the, the carbohydrates that are produced in cane. But where that sort of intervention occurs, you know, like the New England IPA experience, like Lambic has sort of is a is an expression of sort of the, the history and the the just sort of whatever, you know, led a area to go down, you know, path A rather than path B. And so in a lot of sort of the the Francosphere rums, you're going to get uh, rum produced from um, fresh cane juice. And so you're not going to go through the molasses process. Like when you see, you know, uh, rum produced, it it throws me sometimes when I see U.S. distillers making rum for the most part. And I, I think I gave the example in the survey of one that I thought was really cool. Um, when St. George Spirits out of the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, got mm-hmm. California cane, did a you know fresh pressing there and then fermented the results. But for the most part, um, you know, if you're a U.S. distillery, you're not you're going to want that concentrate. You're not want to you know, you, you're not going to be importing sugar cane. That's it's it's just, you know, not a not a particularly um, viable path for a business. But if you are in the places where cane is grown um, and you're you know not necessarily, you know, pulling off, you know, sugar cane juice for crystallization and, you know, granulated sugar and all those purposes, but you're sort of moving straight from, you know, cane to the bottle with, you know, the the intervening steps, um, you get a very different product while it still is a like cane juice distillate. And so that's the sometimes called rum agricole, um, sort of a Mm. a fresh, bright expression of it. Cachaca is, you know, that when you talk about, you know, the same thing in different languages, you have, you know, Brazilian cachaca, which is that, you know, fresh um, pressed cane juice. And so, um, we've, we, we have all these, you know, options now in the U S and, and sort of, I called out, uh, four square distillery specifically, cause I feel like for a long time, you know, U S, um, at least as you know, a, a market, a, a large wealthy market close to where lots of these rums are produced, sort of undervalued rum. You know, we, we had spice rums, which can be delicious. And I don't mean to like denigrate them in any way, but that the, the product itself and the quality of the product was sort of, um, not held in the same regard. And you, we see that with, you know, what happened with whiskey and bourbon in the U S and, you know, scotch, like now the prices for those are, you know, many folds greater Out than what control. they were historically, but also now <laughs> the quality has gone up because that, you know, the, the, you know, tide has raised. And so, um, rums, I, I, I fear to sort of say that that might be where things are headed. Um, mm. but distilleries like Foursquare sort of looking at, okay, we're not, you know, we're not going to be adding caramel color. We're not going to be, you know, I see you said I could swear. So I'm going to say bastardized, but maybe that's not the <laughs> right word. We're not, gonna, we're not going to like, um, produce a product that, that is sort of meant to be consistent for a mass appeal to sort of hit that lowest common denominator so that we have a product, but we're going to try to, you know, like, like you say with Lambics, like you give the expression or example in the prior show, there is going to see what the best product can be. Um, and that's what I think we're now seeing in sort of the, the rums that are being brought into the U S is we're starting to see sort of that, you know, as, as whiskey has sort of moved into, you know, elevated status, we're starting to see sort of rums get a similar treatment. And that to me is quite exciting. 
on a on a bourbon page I was on, they mentioned that they said that there was a rum that that was for bourbon drinkers, and it was a sipping rum, and and I was like, okay, all right, that's interesting. But I like oh, the idea so of there being more rums. like individual expressions. That makes me want to try, yeah, like the fresh pressed juice rums and stuff. That I I need to try that. Yeah, the, awesome. you. Uh, there's, there's a liquor cabinet somewhere around Central Oregon that I think you need to visit. Um, <laughs> I'm into that. Well, you you gave me some of that amazing uh, distillate. Um, that was the was it habanero or ghost pepper yes. or what was it habanero? And because I can't swear, it's called fuck Trump and his stupid fucking wall. That's um, what it was called. That yeah. one, and it's not spicy at all, but it is delicious. It is not. That was and really it's... weird. Mm-hmm. Never and to experienced me, that's sort of another like that. another expression of um, you know folks in food science and just in general food production sort of taking new approaches. I, I, I'm you know molecular gastronomy sort of went in the like let's see how crazy we can get direction, which yeah is charming, but let's extract you know, the flavor what, of dirt. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Uh, yeah, but to me, sort of this this new space is let's make something that's actually a little bit more approachable. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Empirical Spirits originally sort of um, in a you know, loose association with people that had been in the sphere of Noma and whatnot um, mm-hmm. is actually now moving to the U.S. They got a they are oh. moving to Brooklyn. And so soon, of course, be, yeah, <laughs> be much more accessible. But they're sort of <laughs> sort evolution. of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Their approach was saying, you know, historically distillation was an application of heat to allow you to sort of separate out different compounds in this ferment that you had produced. Mm-hmm. Um, but heat does a bunch of other things. Heat, you know, caramelizes and Maillards and like all these other chemical processes that occur as an application of heat. And so their approach, and they are certainly not the first to have done this. You know, if you look at, you know, the flavor industry and there's a bunch of... Um, Oh yeah, like zero proof Roto, spirits are now in the market. Yeah. Um, they're doing a similar thing, but there's they took a let's take those processes, that knowledge, and and make a spirit out of it, and so be able to sort of hit those exact um, exact compounds that they are seeking. And so in the in you know in the espresso distillate or sorry in the habanero distillate, it is you know let's take that you know juicy pepper flavor that is existent in the habanero that tropical flavor um but without leave the, the capsaicin behind yeah exactly yeah and um, by choosing the the spectrum of, of pressure and heat they're able to like select for flavor which is that's just mind-blowing i mean i feel like that's where spirits will go like altogether is is uh vacuum distillation yeah yeah, no vacuum distillation. Perhaps even then, you know, a, a careful combination of vacuum and uh, heat and distillation. Heat. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still drawing you know, out some of those Maillard flavors that you do want. Yeah, exactly. Or even after the fact, you like you hit, you know, you you maybe vacuum distill first, and then you hit like a very specific portion of that distillate with heat, but not the rest. And yep, um, you know, get and like back a, blend to get it exactly yeah. where you want it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That is, I'm sure that's happening. Somebody's doing that. <laughs> Can we talk about falafels for a second? Sure. Because I, is, too, love this. falafels. <laughs> but I, I got kind of picky over time. Like, at first, I think I was just like, I like all falafels. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, all right, this better be good. And uh, usually yeah. what I'm looking for, and I actually researched the place that you brought up, because I wanted to see if theirs were green and herby on the inside, and they are. And that's usually what I'm looking for. 
beyond that, there are some more specifications. But tell me about your falafels, these ones you like at uh, Amsterdam Falafel in Omaha. Green, herby, and I'm going to say not, they, they don't become mush when you eat them. Mm-hmm. That's the, for me, the greatest falafel disappointment is that falafel that maybe has a nice crisp layer on the outside, but it, inside is sort of like chickpea mush. Yep. Um, because then you don't have that sort of, it, it just, you don't have that textural differentiation in the overall sort of sandwich. Um, yeah, so I, that's sort I, of I find I that some places like falafel. over, they over grind them. And I think that's part of the issue is if you don't, if you grind them too much, you don't leave those kind of like, I don't know, little spaces for them to cook in. You've created sort of a mashed potato in the middle. But I can also appreciate there's a challenge there because you don't want your falafel to fall apart. And right. so you you do have to hit that balance between having like some sort of binder. Yep. Um, so to maintain structural integrity and and not being mushy. And for me, that's what, you know, to, to say that my favorite falafel is in Nebraska is I feel a little bit... Um, you know, calling out my taste, but they do just such a good job of, you know, maintaining sort of a light, airy, um, but flavorful falafel inner with a crispy exterior. Um, You're chasing everything I'm chasing. You're describing my perfect falafel right now. (laughs) I, uh, you know, trip to Omaha sounds like needs to be next on your list. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm planning on getting out that way, uh, pretty soon. So maybe I'll just have to stop by Omaha on my way out. That'd be great. It's an interesting city for food that I think is sort of underappreciated. And I'd say it's for two reasons. Um, Well, two reasons why it's interesting. To me, one is, you know, it it is Omaha, Nebraska, like Omaha exists because it was a a transportation hub for agricultural products and grew up around that. And it's a, you know, huge agricultural region, but it's often been, you know, commodity agriculture, but it doesn't preclude it from specialty uh, crops. And so you are getting more specialty growing happening in that region. which is interesting and cool and things can grow there and maybe not as well as they do in, you know, in the Northwest or so easily, but they do. Another one is wealth. Omaha mm. is a, has an incredible amount of like personal individual wealth, um, which is good and bad and all sorts of, you know, complex reasons that exist in our world. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it allows for a, a restaurant scene to sort of flourish. I think, to, for an extraordinary representation for the size of the city that it is. Huh. Nice. I I honestly know nothing about the food scene there. Um, I would think Omaha would be steaks and pork chops everywhere you go. That would be my guess. But I guess uh, hopefully that's modernized a little bit. I think one of maybe the most interesting beer uh, Belgian-focused beer bars is right across from sort of Berkshire Hathaway offices. And you can maybe you know, understand a bit why. Yeah. That sounds why like such money. a place would open. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, on the falafel tip, uh, I, I guess this is going backwards a little bit. I did have a really good one, uh, the other day at Freem, um, oh. in, in hood river. So if you're, if you're feeling falafel ish and you're out that way, you may want to grab one. And the thing that really, and I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, maybe not. Um, the thing that really impressed me there was I don't like ketchup and, uh, the falafel came with fries. And I looked at the ketchup and I was like, okay, that looks like Portland ketchup. It's got that coarser grind. It's not shiny. So it doesn't have corn syrup in it. Like, I'm going to go ahead and try this ketchup. And I, I tried it and I was like, that is not Portland ketchup, but it is delicious. It is maybe the best ketchup I've ever had. And so I went and That's, told the, yeah. they've got like an open kitchen there. So I went and told the chef or whoever was working in the kitchen at that time. And he said, yeah, they make it in house and they make it with kombucha. Oh, 
Yeah. For the acidic on the, whole, on the whole ferment yeah. tip. Yeah. Did I say freem again? I meant to say ferment. Gosh, I keep getting those two <laughs> mixed up. This was at ferment for sure. So anyway, good falafel cool, that, there. Yeah. Maybe not Omaha level, but uh, I thought they did a good job on the grind. Uh, great herby interior cooked well. Um, the flatbread was really nice that it came in too. So they, they're, they're doing it right there. That's the one where I feel oftentimes places also fall short is the, the, you know, the carbohydrate yeah. element that it gets yeah. wrapped in sometimes just sort of gets phoned in a little bit. And I can appreciate for like, you know, workflow purposes that, that that's a major time saver. Bread is hard. Um, but I think it, you're certainly, you know, you're, you're going to encounter sort of a ceiling and how good it can be. Um, if you're not doing the bread yourself. So there's a food that is one of my favorite foods and reading your survey, I was like, wow, that is so cool that we share this little tiny niche food that maybe some people haven't even heard of. And it's absolutely one of my favorite foods. And it's one of those foods too, that like, I don't know when I get my tax return or get a little extra money in my pocket or whatever. It's one of those things I kind of think of and I go pick it up. Now you make your own and we're talking about salmon candy. And yes. you had a great experience as a child that kind of started your addiction many, many years ago. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So my family would spend summers on the Oregon coast and the Oregon coast has a history of fisheries. Um, you know, unfortunately, as the world evolves, those are being further challenged. Disappearing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, at the time, and, and it's still there today, I think um, you could go to, you know, processing facilities that would often have sort of small fish shops attached to them for, you know, they would be doing processing for larger markets, but also they would sell a little bit to the locals. And mm -hmm. so you'd pop in and someone would come out the back and, you know, see what, what you were seeking that day and you'd learn what had come in. Um, and we had sort of over the years built up a relationship with this one woman who, you know, at that point, you know, I'm seven years old and everything is tastes weird to me to include as you can imagine a, a fish processing facility and associated fish shop are not the most attractive of smells and so yeah um, i often was not the the biggest fan of going there for that reason but <laughs> one day we went in and they had this thing in their case um and it it was this weird craggy dark it didn't really look like the other fish and um and it was salmon candy and of course i didn't want to try it and this woman was so insistent and so she eventually got me to to try a, or to agree to try a small bit, but on the but I, you know, set the condition that I be supplied with a gumball for there was a gumball machine in the corner of the shop. Um, <laughs> and so the, the, the agreement was made and I tried the salmon candy and it is, as, as you have experienced, it is delicious. And I'm not sure if I ever actually went for that gumball because I fundamentally didn't like gumballs. I just, I needed some, I needed an exchange to occur for this to happen. Um, and yeah, salmon candy, it, it is not something I have seen outside of the Northwest. I see it a few times or on the West Coast. Um, but it is now something that that we make partly because of it's not readily available. And I have, you know, as in many things, I have my own taste preferences and dreams of what it needs to be. And I've found, you know, making our own to be the, the best way to achieve that. And we're fortunate that we do have, you know, enough fisheries still locally that we can get salmon trim pretty uh, regularly. And so we'll take, you know, trim, yep. which is often, you know, a third the price and yep. just as delicious and yep. make salmon. Or more so. It. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love getting that. I love getting the bellies even. So good. Uh, so what is your, what is your sweetener? Like are you using maple or using honey or using brown sugar? Like what are you doing to, to candy them up? 
I generally use maple. I am a sucker okay. for all things maple. I, I am glad I figured that, as much. That the uh you know Vermont maple classification system was um improved and sort mm-hmm. of relabeled because for a long time it was hard to get like C grade commercial, but now they have was it very strong flavor, very dark, I think is what it's called, or some you know, they're the former commercial grade that was like just shy of actually having like insect um contamination is now more readily available and so uh we'll use a little bit of that for the liquid component but there's also you know maple sugar that you can um impart and so yeah we'll, oh we nice okay maple is our sweetener and um smoke the the wood component of smoke we sort of go between we have a lot of um alder that is readily available and so we'll do a, a decent amount of alder but flavor with some fruit woods generally um nice. apple for the most part it just it's it's present and tasty my my mouth is watering thinking about this right now. That sounds so good. Have you ever added a, a spice component uh, component to it at all? I haven't. And okay, because I saw that the other day and I didn't buy it, but somebody was doing a hot version. It was a you know it was still still called salmon candy, but they called it hot salmon candy. I don't know what they did to make it hot, but I was like, oh, I think I would go for that. Maybe I don't know. I think I would go for that. I think I would almost maybe use a, a different fish. To me, okay. salmon, they're, they're, you know, aside from sort of treasuring it as maybe something that we won't have forever, as sad as that may be. But maybe yeah. there's like, if you want to talk about food science, some of the, you know, there's like salmon now being grown in Kansas. So who knows where that will lead us. Um, in just above but, ground fisheries or what are they doing in warehouses? Yeah. And where uh, I, again, this is probably where I, I know much less than I should to be able to comment on this well. This but yeah, it's, it, it made sort of news specifically because it was, it's a genetically modified fish um, uh, that they're going to try to do penned. Because, I mean, the salmon market is strong. People love salmon. It's a very tasty fish. Um, but to, so there, yeah, it, food science may lead to an interesting outcome in that space. But for while we have it um, and its flavor, I'm I'm wary of anything that, masks rather than compliments hmm. um and i to me that that's where spice becomes a question of like i i would be i i i'm sure there's a world out there where it can be done extremely well i just think it would take so much salmon of me experimenting to reach that end i would be <laughs> i'd be a little sad so maybe dial it in on something else some other uh more sustainable fish yeah and maybe a, a fish that you know you're not going to be competing as much against in terms of flavor to see, to like try to get like a baseline spice level that kind of makes understand sense to me. how the spice yeah. will interact with like the smoke and the sweetener. And then once you're sort of happy with how the spice is playing in that with that fish, then you can sort of add, you know, another element of that sort of salmon flavor to sort of see if they complement. And that's editing. <laughs> and that's <Yep. laughs> that's that's the thing it, you know when we go back to like what we were talking about where it's it's you know art that's functional uh that's you got to be an editor sometimes and i think sometimes it's the american way to be like and let's make it spicy but what if it was like sour and spicy and <laughs> and sweet and it's like well now you've kind of taken it away from what it was originally um and you need to edit yourself back down to what was actually good so i i like that i appreciate that level of yeah. editing so can we talk a little bit about your trips to France as a kid and how sure. you feel like that might have influenced some of your tastes? Because you you have very like focused tastes in food is, and, and drink is what it feels like to me. Like you you kind of dial in on something and it becomes uh, 
very, uh, very well thought out. And I, I appreciate that. So do you think some of that came from influences as a child? I certainly think it does. And I'm not sure, you know, my, my um, parents were literature professors and mostly retired by the time I was around. So sort of were experiencing the world that in a way that sort of retirees do. Ah, um, okay. So they were, they were older when they had you then, huh? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. That both were. I, I, that actually, that makes sense, Sylvan. <laughs> Meeting you and talking to you, you've got that level of like, I don't know, extra maturity to you that, you know, I've known you for a little while. And even since you were much younger than you are now, you've, you've always kind of been the same Sylvan as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. My parents were older and we didn't really, we lived sort of out in a rural area. And so I, th- I think, mm-hmm. you know, my interactions were largely with older folk and I'm not sure, you know, how that has played out over the years. But what it did do is, you know, my father was loved gardening, was not particularly awesome. a good gardener. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It definitely doesn't matter with things like, you know, summer squash and zucchini. Uh, exactly. Um, and eggplant. And so we would end up with an abundance of these things. You know, there's always that joke of, you know, it's, it's you know, zucchini season better, you know, lock your car doors. Otherwise, you're going to find one on your front seat. Um <laughs> And so we, we had that in abundance and, um, you know, my father, my father had many quirks about him and to include that his go-to head covering was a beret. Um, and awesome. you know, this is like rural Northern California and like an older gentleman in a beret. It, it, he was probably very much the site. Um, but part of what we, you know, their roles in academia and being mostly retired allowed us to sort of take, you know, full summer vacations. And so the, their preference was, um, you know, Normandy and Brittany and Northern France and sort of the, oh, the moving between, you know, Northern California and the farmer's markets that we had and, you know, the growing season, the growing climate being comparable, I'd say Oregon's probably better aligned with, you know, the, the whole notion of like Burgundian climate, which is again, further, further South, but um, sort of that approach to, you know, simple expression of agricultural products as, as food, um, I think was, was present in my childhood. Not that I would just have like a cheese quesadilla though for many dinners. Cause I, you know, I was young. Um, yeah. And that's the thing is like, I feel like we all find our own way, but those, some of those, uh, those rungs on the ladder are kind of set in our childhood. And eventually we're going to maybe go back to what we learned and, and find even nostalgia in some of the things that as a kid, we were like, Oh God, ratatouille or, you know, another, another serving of, of summer squash or whatever. It's like, no, like, I love that now. I get so excited when it's squash season. I can't agree with you on ratatouille. I still, it's, you're not a ratatouille guy. Oh. I'm not a ratatouille guy. Darn. I, well, I've had it good and I've had it bad. And I think it's one of those dishes that requires a lot of technique to get right. And I, that's probably why it's in the movie as such a, you know, accomplishment. It's beautiful, A, but it, it certainly, there's a lot of pitfalls in making it. As we what talked about What texture do you seek in ratatouille? Because that to me is maybe the biggest challenge of it. The ones that I've appreciated still had a slight amount of crunch. Okay. Like almost pushing like undercooked slightly. Um, and the ones I didn't like were everything had the exact same texture. So if you cook it to a certain point, they're all going to, it's going to be like homogenous in texture. And the ones that I've enjoyed had varying textures throughout because the, you know, squash doesn't cook as much as the tomatoes and stuff like that. Fair enough. I guess, yeah, it's, it's too easy for it to sort of devolve into steamed vegetable medley that. Yes. That's where I get nervous. 
and, and it's it's pretty awful when you take it to that point. It really is a mush. Yep. And quite often an underseasoned mush is what I found. So yeah, I've had some bad ones. But I yeah. do I do appreciate it. And I think it's one of those things where too, it's like uh it's it's gotta be fresh out of the garden. You know, if you're buying it from some bulk wholesaler and it's been sitting in a warehouse, you know, losing flavor for months, then it's just not gonna be the same product as something you picked that morning and and prepared freshly. It's it's got that like vibrance to it still. Yeah. And then that, you know, that makes me wonder about what does it mean for say the U S and we have, you know, the massive population growth in the growth in the Southwest and how, how to sort of translate those qualities and should those qualities be translated to areas that um, are not really viable for growing in that way. And um, yeah, it's weird. We as humans choose to live in these areas where food really can't grow. (laughs) But since we have the technology now, I guess it's it's all very possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, Sylvan, I, I think we're going to wrap it up there. It has been amazing talking to you. I, I I feel like I've gotten to know you even better than than I have ever gotten to know you. And I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm definitely going to have to come down and uh, visit that liquor cabinet with you. And I, I'd like to maybe do an in-person episode sometime with you as well in, in Corvallis. Maybe we can sip some rum and, and talk about it on the on the podcast as well. Sure, let's do it. And there's honestly some great sort of um, farm restaurants around here that might be sort of cool to integrate into that work because that's you know one of the attractions of being in our, in the Northwest region that we are is that you can sort of have those those joint efforts and produce some really cool things. But yeah, no, thank you for having me, and um, this was great. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you again soon.